to Mark chapter 9. For those of you that are our guests today, um, we are going through the gospel of Mark. This is actually our 33rd sermon message in this gospel so far. And today we finish chapter 9. We finished another chapter, and we only have seven more chapters to go. It's going to get intense. It's going to be speeding up as, as Jesus begins to make his way out of Galilee and now towards Jerusalem, where he will die on the cross and be buried and rise again. Uh, but we find ourselves today at the very end of chapter 9. Remember in our study that Jesus has now turned his attention away from teaching to the crowds to really focusing in on teaching the disciples uh, very specific lessons. These are the guys that he, when he sends back into heaven, he is going to turn over the mission uh, of the church, of the gospel, over to these guys. And in our last section, the lesson was was on a subject that he will come back to time and time again leading up to the cross, and, and it is a lesson on humility. Many of us talked about this this morning in our faith groups, and you'll remember in the beginning of chapter 9 when Jesus and the inner circle had gone up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and then they had come down from the Mount. The ones that were in the valley were having trouble. There was a boy who was demon-possessed, and the, the disciples, the apostles, could not cast out that demon. So when Jesus comes off of the Mount of Transfiguration, the father of that boy finds Jesus. Jesus heals the boy, and then the disciples want to know, why could not we heal this boy? And this is really where the lesson on humility begins, because you will remember that Jesus made this statement, this kind comes not but by prayer and fasting. And Jesus wanted his apostles and his disciples to be reminded that without him, they could do nothing. That they were dependent completely upon his power. He reminds them that their dependence must remain upon him. And then they, when they get to Capernaum, Jesus the, takes them into a house and he digs a, a little deeper into this lesson on humility by asking them, hey, when we were on the road traveling here, I saw you guys talking amongst yourselves. What were y'all talking about? By the way, Jesus already knew what they were talking about because he knew all things. But he's digging here because he knew exactly what they were talking about. They were arguing with one another about who was going to be the greatest of them in the kingdom. And then Jesus gives them this classic statement in verse number 35. Look at it and mark it in your Bible. It's one of the great statements of this gospel. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is telling them, don't look to be at the top. Don't look to be in the spotlight. Don't look to be served. Instead, look who you can serve. In fact, be a servant of all. No matter what their social status is, serve them. He re redefines greatness for them in this moment because what they had seen, remember, what the apostles had seen exemplified in front of them by, by way of spiritual leadership was the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. A group of men that were very prideful, a group of men who were all about their names being called out and having the chief seats and in the synagogue. This was the example that they had, very prideful leadership. And Jesus makes this very clear to them. This isn't leadership in the kingdom of God. 
This is not the kind of leadership that I am leading you to. In fact, he tells them, the son of man, who was himself, the son of God came not to be served, but to give his life a ransom for all, for many. He says, true greatness is treating and serving everyone, no matter their status, as if they are superior to us. And he brings a child into the room to demonstrate just that. You see, the path to greatness in the kingdom of God is down, not up. Which is why Jesus, again, just before his crucifixion, on the night before his crucifixion, he gets down, Dr. Clark, on his knees. And he washes the feet of his disciples. Listen, even the one that he knew was going to betray him in just a few hours. The least of these. Let me ask us all this morning this question. What do we use, and this is review, but what do we use as our measure of greatness? How do we define greatness? Is it personal achievement? Is it the successes that you have in your job? Is is it your family? Is it your houses? Is it your possessions? Is it personal achievement? Or is it unselfish service? I love what F.B. Meyer, who was a, a British pastor and commentator, he wrote this. I used to think that God's blessings were on shelves, one above the other. And the taller we grew in character the easier we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on the shelves one beneath the other. And it's not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower, and that we have to go down, always down, as we mature to get his best gifts. I love that thought. So Jesus gives them a powerful lesson on humility. And then he moves now in our our section tonight, versus or this morning, It might be tonight by the time we're finished, but in verses 42 through 50, he he moves, he changed subjects from humility now to commitment. And the text in front of us today is about the cost of discipleship. And the cost of discipleship is radical self-denial and self-discipline. And I'm going to ask you one more time, if you're able to stand, to stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's word to us, beginning in verse number 42. Jesus speaking, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell and to the fire that never shall be quenched. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, and if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into, enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where, where their, their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt hath lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Father, as we come to your word again, it's a strong message today. And so, Lord, I pray that our tone would be the tone you would have us to have, help us to be filled with your spirit. 
Help us to say all that you would have us to say. Lord, even I pray that the fear of man would not keep me from saying what you would have me to say. And Lord, help me not to say anything that I shouldn't. I pray, Lord, that we would let your word speak this morning. And your Holy Spirit work in our hearts individually. And Lord, if there are any amongst us today or there are any that are watching that do not know you as their personal Savior and Lord, that today they would turn in faith to you, trust only in you and your work on the cross and your resurrection, and may they come to faith in you. And for us, Lord, who are your children, God, may today be a reminder of the danger of sin and its seriousness and the extreme measures that we should take in order to keep it out of our life. In Christ's name we pray all this. And the church said... Man, you may be seated. Those of you that are, especially our guests today, our, our church is a church that is committed to preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. Because the Bible tells us to, to do so, and it's really why kind of our pattern here is to go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We, we don't skip the ones we don't like. We Don't skip the ones that will sound extreme or radical like the one in front of us today. As you notice, today's text, it's full of graphic terminology and severe warnings. And it really is a a passage about, as I've, I've titled this, Radical Christianity. Both in coming to Christ for salvation and living for Christ after salvation. It's a passage that calls for its extreme attitudes and behaviors. It calls for radical sacrifice in this temporary life as we set our hope on future glory and not our eyes on this earth. But understand this, and please don't miss this, that radical Christianity is not like many other religions that call for its followers to hate and to take the lives of others who do not accept their religion. That is not the kind of radical Christianity that we see in the Bible. Instead, Jesus says this is radical Christianity, to love all people, to do good to them that hate you, to to love your enemies, to bless them that curse you, and to pray for them that despitefully use you. And by the way, Jesus exemplified that, didn't he, in his life. That is radical Christianity, but I also think that what is in front of us this morning is a message that is greatly needed in the day in which you and I live, when under the name of Christianity and the name of church, there is so much focus on the accumulation of external and the temporary things of this life in the average church. Let me just talk for a moment about the word radical because it's tossed around a a lot today on the news, you'll hear it a lot. The word radical refers to something that is fundamental, fanatical maybe even, some would say. It is intrinsic, it is intensive, it is essential, it's fundamental, it is extreme. And that is the kind of Christianity that Jesus is calling for in our passage. Listen, God has not called us as his people to live the Christian life in a casual, carefree Way, not thinking about eternity. He has called us to realize 
that this life is short. So in this warning to the apostles and the disciples and to you and I as it's inspired in Scripture for us, there's two main points that I want to give you this morning that Jesus is trying to teach them. First of all, Jesus gives a radical warning about harming other believers. You might write out beside this radical love, radical love. And we see this in verse number 42. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, mark this little phrase, that believe in me. That believe in me. He's speaking here of, of Christians, young Christians, baby Christians. If anyone who offends one of these little ones that believe in me, certainly children would be involved in that. He says it's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. This is a radical warning about harming other believers. As you think about the heart behind this verse, it's a call really for radical love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you this morning, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ so much that you will go to radical extremes to see them grow in their Christian life? Will you go through radical measures to make sure that you are not a hindrance to their growth? Jesus warns in this very severe statement that before you and I would lead another believer to sin, we would be better off to die a very awful and horrible death that he explains here. And this deals with not only what we teach with our lips, what they hear with our lips, but more importantly, church, what they see in our lives. Because more is caught than taught. And so what they see in us, we are teaching them with our lives. Jesus, listen, Jesus is jealous about his people and his children and his family. All the way back in Genesis chapter number 12, you will remember that God told Abraham and the people of Israel that whoever blesses you, my people, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse, which is why, by the way, that we do and should always stand behind Israel, God's people, and we will do so. But it goes much further than that. That was established in Genesis, but he has always been jealous of his people, of of his church, the family of God at large. God does not take lightly those that try to harm His people, his family, his church. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, we see this principle again with the church as Ananias and Sapphira lied and tried to take advantage of the church and God dealt very harshly with them. This is my church. In Matthew's account of this very same text, it says in Matthew chapter 18, he says the same thing that Mark says in verse number 6, but then he adds something else in verse number 7. Look at it. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. Notice this. But woe to that man by whom the offenses come. Look, we expect the world to tempt people. We expect the world to seduce believers, but judgment is pronounced on the world and it is extended to anyone, even in the household of God, who solicits another believer to sin. Remember what Jesus said back in verse number 37 of this same chapter, just a few verses back. Look at it. Whosoever shall receive one 
of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receives not just me, but receives him that sent me. And here's the point. Christ lives in every believer. And how we treat a believer is how we treat Christ. And how we treat Christ is thus how we treat God the Father. Do you remember Acts chapter 9? It's a story, the conversion of a man whose name was Saul. At his conversion, Jesus changed his name to what? Paul. Saul to Paul. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Jesus wanted to exemplify this. He gave him a new name. But you remember when he was Saul, before he was saved, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christianity. And you might remember what Jesus says to Saul when he arrests him on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9 and verse number 4. He says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou the church? No, that's not what he said. He said, why persecutest thou me? When you persecute the church, you persecute me. Jesus illustrates in Matthew 25, beginning in verse number 35. For for I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry and fed thee? I mean, I don't remember bringing you food. I don't remember bringing you drink. I don't remember visiting you in the prison. Look at verse Uh, Verse number 40, at the end. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. So when you see that person that you assume is lower than you, socially, spiritually, when you see that person That is, in your mind, below you, by the way, a good sign of pride. Be the servant of all. Serve them. Serve everyone. This is a warning. A very unmistakable warning. As you go back to your text, it's a radical warning. Whoever offends, whoever causes to stumble another child of God, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea. What's a, what is a millstone? A millstone would have weighed tons, and it would have been pulled by mules and farming to, to crush grain. And I think we have a picture of it right here. This will give you a good, a good visual. To have one of these put around your necks and notice what the text says, to be thrown into the sea. Now, we've added a little shark here. I don't see that in the scripture, but just a little fear factor, I guess, added in. And this is what he's saying. Nobody wants to die this way. Say, what is he saying? He's saying to offend another brother or sister in Christ, to lead them into a pattern and a life of sin, it is a serious thing. Don't do it. Be careful. Be careful. 
A call for radical Christianity that would never solicit another brother or sister in Christ toward the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or materialism or towards the love of this world or towards pride or any other sin. This is what he's saying, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love doesn't solicit to sin. Love does the very opposite of that. And let me just pause right here and say, young person, that if anyone ever tries to solicit you to sin under the umbrella of love, run as fast as you can. Because that's not love. Adults, be careful about drawing other believers into your web of gossip. Into your, your, your world of greed and materialism. Your world of alcohol and prescription and non-prescription drugs. Your world of sensual and sexual entertainment. Be very careful about this. This is serious in the eyes of God. God forbid that we provoke our brothers and sisters in Christ to jealousy by flaunting that which we have that they do not have or provoking them to anger by unkindness or indifference. Love is careful not to lead other brothers and sisters to any kind of sin and we should take radical means to do so. That's what the text is saying. We can say it like this. Love provokes what the Bible says. Love provokes one another to good works. True love provokes us to good works, not to sin. That's why we should be careful in our activities of life that we don't lead other people into places of sin by the way that we live life. That's why we make maybe decisions that the people that, that people would often say are radical decisions because I understood this years ago. Just realized my pen was there. It's a distraction. It's a distraction to me, so. Learned this many years ago from my father, that what we do in moderation, our children and the next generation may very well do in excess. And so we're guarded in this. This is a radical warning about harming other believers. It's radical love. Secondly, are you ready for this? How many of you know this is not my word, this is God's word? And how many of you know that I would not be lovingly shepherding you if I did not preach to you the whole counsel of God? So he says, secondly, here's a radical warning about personal sin. Personal sin. And this is radical, right out beside this, radical purity. First one was radical love towards others. Secondly is radical purity inside. And if you don't think he's serious about this, maybe mark the words, verse 43. If thy hand offend thee, say it with me. Cut it off. Say, cut it off. If thy foot offend thee, what? If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. It sounds extreme because it is extreme. Where verse 42 calls us for radical love for others, these verses call for radical purity in ourselves. And of course, it's not promoting self-mutilation here, but it speaks 
metaphorically to show us the importance of keeping sin out of our lives by radical means. It's calling for painful self-discipline. And it reminds us that following Jesus, listen, following Jesus is worth any possible temporary loss or discomfort. There is no doubt about this. What is Jesus? What's his main point here? This is it. Sin is serious. Would you say that with me? Sin Sin is serious. It's not to be played around with. There's dangers that come with it when we wink at it, when we disregard it, when we make light of it. We live in a culture that has grown very accustomed to toying with sin and trivializing the very concept of hell. And Jesus wants us to understand that sin must be dealt with seriously and severely and that hell must not be trivialized. It reminds me of the Old Testament story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where it says that Samuel hacked Agag to pieces and when it talks about that, it is a symbol of how we have to deal with sin. We don't tolerate it. We deal harshly with it. We do not make allowance for it in our lives. And here in our text, Jesus speaks specifically. He mentions these things. Our hands, our feet, and our eyes. Symbolic of the overall behaviors of our life. What we see, what we do, and where we go. And the verbs here are in the present tense, which means this, that we are always to be doing these things. It's not something we do once, it's something that we continue to do over and over again until, aren't you glad for this day, when we have glorified bodies and we no longer have to deal with sin. Until then, he says, deal with it harshly, deal with it seriously. Maybe today we would say, take a sledgehammer to your MacBook. Throw your cell phone off of a cliff. Oh, but it's so beneficial. You don't understand. I do my banking on my computer, on my iPhone. Yeah, but that's not all you do on your iPhone and your, and your MacBook. So get rid of it if you have to. Take extreme measures to make sure that these things do not destroy your life. You say, I see nowhere in the Bible where Jesus says, smash your MacBooks, your computers. No, he doesn't. He says, poke out your eye. So, give you the choice this morning. <laughs> Smash your MacBook or poke out your eye. Which one do you want? You know what he's saying? Deal with it harshly. Don't make allowance for it. It's about realizing what the Apostle Paul said, but Johnny, when he said, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What's he saying? All that I am, everything that I have, it does not belong to me. It is God's. It is God's. James 1, 14 and 15 reminds us that sin is the product of lust conceiving in our hearts and bringing forth sin. It is, as John says, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the, the pride of life, inner attitudes that lead to sin. And this is why we must guard our heart with all diligence because out of our, the condition of our heart are the issues of life. 
Remember a few chapters back, Mark chapter 7, verse 20, that which cometh out of the man, that's what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and adulteries and fornications and murders. You don't just wake up one day and start doing these things. They begin in your heart. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So here's what Jesus is is teaching. He's teaching the disciples the importance of dealing with sin in their own life. He's teaching them the seriousness of leading other people into sin. And then he goes on to connect sin's relationship with hell. And we can't ignore this part of the text. The reference to hell in our text indicates that these statements are also cause to an initial genuine repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ that brings salvation because the Bible speaks very clearly of hell. Although many churches today want to skip over it. Listen, we must not skip over it because Jesus spoke more about it than almost anything. And I've said this before, but where Jesus speaks, we must speak loudly. Where he's silent, we need not speak. But where he speaks, we need to speak. This is our command. This is the word of God. And what is Mark saying? He's saying the same thing that the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 4, verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mightest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? This is more than a call to purity in the life of a believer, although it is that. It is that. He's teaching the disciples that. But it's more than that. It is also a call to salvation from sin and its eternal punishment in a place that the Bible is very clear about called hell. It is the word, it's the Greek word Gehenna. And it's always the term that refers to to the lake of fire. And that is why I noticed verse number 43, mark it, unquenchable fire. Verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And look, I want you to understand this this morning, that hell and punishment and justice, it doesn't diminish the love of God. How could a loving God have a place called hell. It doesn't diminish it. In fact, it demonstrates it. God's wrath as expressed in hell, it's not a a cranky, emotional explosion from a God who was having a bad day one day and said, I think I'm going to create a place called hell. No, God's righteous anger and just punishment, it's his settled opposition to the cancer of sin which is eating the insides of humanity and is the very reason that we have a severed relationship from God do you understand this in God's original creation he did not create sin it was a perfect environment man without sin perfect relationship with God but now we live in a very broken world don't we don't we okay Surely I'm not the only one who sees that. And man, we try to deal with this broken world in a lot of different ways. Some of us try to try to deal with it with religion, and some of us try to deal with it with drugs or alcohol. We all try to deal with it. But listen, the root cause of why we live here is because of sin. Adam and Eve sinned. And because we are all from Adam and Eve, we are all sinners. We're all sinners. Sin is serious because it is the thing that separates us from God. 
Why take it so serious? Why have a radical approach to it? Because it is the enemy of salvation. And it's what broke the relationship between man and God. Listen to what what Romans 6.23 says. Paul says, the wages, the earnings of our sin is death. It's eternal death. It's hell. That's the payment for it. And if anyone fails to acknowledge sin, if anyone fails to repent of their sin and confess sin and in humility turn to Jesus Christ and his payment for sin on the cross, then eternal hell is the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. That's depressing until you get to the second point, the second part of the verse. How many of you are thankful for that that conjunction but right in the middle? The wages of sin is death, say it with me, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's not just bad news. We don't come today just to deliver the bad news. We come to deliver the best news. And the bad news is that sin separates us from God. But the best news is is that Jesus entered this broken world and he died on a cross and he rose from the grave so that we could have eternal life. That's the best news. And so, there's no one who talked more about hell than the man who made a way so that you don't have to go there. That's love. And listen, today, we don't don't ever, nor should we ever, talk of it arrogantly. Or without a broken heart, even. To think that there are people in our city, there are people who sit in this service who unless they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, will spend an eternity there. We don't say that arrogantly, boastfully. Sometimes I hear people, if you don't do this, you're going to hell, bless God, praise God. Really? (laughs) Praise God that they're going to hell? No, we do it with brokenness, with hearts of compassion that want you to turn from your sin and the penalty of sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, I love what, what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to, to us. Where I love this, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem in their unbelief. We, do, we don't present just the bad news. We present the best news. I love what Alistair Begg said about this. Do you realize that Jesus laid down his life right at the very entryway into hell? So as to say to men and women, don't go there. You need not go there. I have gone there so that you don't have to. A man or a woman needs to trample over the body or the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ if they're going to hell. Verse 48 in our text, and we're, we're trying to land. It's a, it's a direct quote from the very last verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 24. They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So yes, hell is indeed the punishment of sin for those that refuse to accept the gift of salvation offered by the brutal death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we all face the penalty of sin until we turn from sin and we place our faith in Jesus Christ. 
And once we have done that and we come to be the disciples of Jesus, here's what he's teaching his disciples. Purity then, holiness then, becomes the, continues to be the pursuit of our Christian life. Which is why Paul says, I, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection so that I don't become a castaway. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness. We're never going to get there. That word perfecting doesn't mean that it's, it's flawless. It means that we are maturing, that we are growing in our, our, our holiness, in the fear of God. Do you have a fear of God? Paul said in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, say it with me, think on these things. Guard your heart and mind. In closing, I want to just touch on verse 49 and 50 because Jesus comes back to instructing the disciples. Look at it again. Everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. What's the image here? This is to evoke the image, imagery of temple sacrifice. They would know exactly what he's talking about, where salt would have been added to the burnt sacrifices that were being offered in the temple. And Jesus says, rather than being thrown into eternal fire, disciples are to be salted sacrifices in fire now in the fires of life, in the trials of life. Or as Peter writes in his epistle, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, fiery trial that is to try you. Or Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies, say it with me, a living sacrifice. That's a great statement. A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. And when you do so, you are really doing God a favor. No, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable, Brother Noel, it's reasonable for us to lay our lives on the altar. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and imperfect will of God. And I love what uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. He said, suffering is better than sinning. Would you say that? Suffering is better than sinning. You can't see the quote there. But it says this, suffering is better than sinning. Notice this. There is more evil in a drop of sin than in an ocean of affliction. And then he makes this statement at the end. Don't miss this. Better to burn for Christ than to turn from Christ. You said, that sounds radical. That's what Jesus is calling for. Have salt in yourself. Have peace one with another, he closes. Here's what all of chapter 9 is about. Stop elevating yourselves, guys. Stop elevating yourselves. Stop the competition. Stop being the cause of temptation. Stop leading others to sin. Take sin seriously. 
In essence, love radically, deal with sin severely, and sacrifice your life wholly. Are those things in your notes? Say them with me. Love radically, deal with sin severely, and sacrifice your life wholly. And then, I'm done. What is the outcome of that? Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 13. Ye are the salt of the earth, he told them. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Here he is saying, you are, you and I are the salt of the earth. In other words, God has called you and I as his followers to be the spiritual influencers on this planet. Warning and encouraging people to turn from sin to faith in Jesus. And this is what you might call a radical witness. He's called us not only to radical love and radical uh, purity, but to, uh, to be a radical witness. Here in our text, in Mark, have salt in yourself. Be pure, be unmixed. In Matthew, you are the salt of the earth. There is no other salt. There are, there are no other spiritual influences in this world than the true disciples of Christ. And I've said this before, but let me reemphasize it this morning, that a lot of lost people will never pick up a Bible. In fact, you may be the only Bible they ever read. They're watching our lives And that's why Paul said we are an epistle written on the hearts of men. Our story is writing a life. Then he changes the metaphors. Not only are you the salt of, uh, not only are you salt of the earth, but you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle or hide it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light into all that are in the house. Let your, say it with me, let your light so shine before men that you may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Listen, the end of all, the end of all is that God would be glorified. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to make him known. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to make him known. How do we do that? By being salt and light. By showing people, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, perish where? In hell. But have eternal life where? In heaven. That's why we're here. And we're to do it with our lips, and we're to do it with our life. And today, as Jesus did, we sound out a warning. A warning to those that don't know Jesus as their Savior. A warning to those who may be trusting in works or something other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is the remission of our sins, covers the remission of our sins.